You're listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. Right, welcome to another episode of the DIY Recording Guys podcast. I'm Vadim from Calm Frog Recording, and I'm Ben from Dreamloud Studio. What's uh, what's been new with you? So, I might be uh, showing my hand a little bit for a future episode, but I've been doing a ton of research on possibly. I might do it this Black Friday. I might pull the trigger next year sometime, but I'm looking to completely upgrade my studio computer. And recording no rig. Way. Yep. Yep. And so Ooh, I can't wait to hear about that. Oh, it's been exciting and frustrating at the same time because I'm debating because I'm gonna build my own PC. That's what I'm gonna do. Cause it's oh really? Yeah, because it's fun and you could save money. So well, I'll say air quotes fun because I've gone down the rabbit hole of what CPU to use. Do you go AMD? Do you go Intel? And what does the base clock speed, should you pay more attention to that or the turbo clock and, you know, what specs are more important, what memory to get, what motherboards, blah, 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 all the, so you really have to think through things. You can't just focus on one thing and move down the path from there because especially with building a computer with the purpose of recording audio, because the center hub of my rig is going to be my interface. So whatever interface I upgrade to, I want to make sure that the connectivity there is compatible with the new computer that I built. And actually, so the one thing that I will say about it is I was really kind of dead set on going with Thunderbolt, but it's much harder to find a Thunderbolt motherboard than I thought Hmm. there would be. And that's kind of where my dilemma has come in because I was pretty ready to pull the trigger, but... Now I have to decide, do I want to wait for technology to catch up and for Thunderbolt to become a more um, common type of technology, at least for computer builds? Because I know they're pretty common with Mac and MacBooks. But I mean, every, every single laptop I, I, I see now, even PCs, have Thunderbolt connections. So I'm surprised. Is that maybe just a desktop limitation? Yeah, I think so. And maybe in the D, DIY community, like there, there are some out there, but they're mm. so expensive. Like the motherboards are more expensive mm. than the CPUs, so it's just one of those things. But in just going through the research, now I'm kind of debating, do I actually really need Thunderbolt? It would be nice, but there's a lot of good USB 3 and other forms of connection type of interfaces out there now that all seem pretty good. So I'm kind of going through the whole gambit, and I think that I'll probably write a blog post about it whenever I'm all done to help people out with this stuff. Well, because, let me ask you this. Yeah, the- yeah, go ahead. The um, well, I have a, I have a lot of questions. For yeah, you actually, yeah. But the first one is just um, the the interface. I assume you're going to stick with Personas because you like that you like the company, which is which is good. Yeah. Is the interface you're going to go with? Does it have onboard processing power or no? I think all the new ones at that price tier I'm looking at do. Okay. The two that I've narrowed it down to, and I think I am going Personas, but it's between their Personas one ninety two, which is a USB three. It costs eight hundred dollars retail, and it's uh, it's got DSP powered. The other one was a Moot or Motu interface, and it's mm-hmm. Thunderbolt two and USB two. 
Mm. But that has right, Thunderbolt two doesn't work with won't work with PC anyway, right? Thunderbolt two is only a Mac thing, or am I off on that? I don't know actually. Yeah, I don't know either. But I think if you're gonna go with like onboard processing, I could be wrong about this too. So do some research. Okay. But I think the Thunderbolt is a big advantage there because effectively you have basically zero latency with Thunderbolt. And that means if you have like plugins or whatever processing that's happening on the interface, you can record through that the same way you would record through a piece of analog gear with basically no latency, Mm. which is kind of a game changer. I know that's like the UAD, uh, you know, that's the UAD platform deal. They were kind of the first ones, I think, to go with that onboard DSP. But anyway, if you're planning on using the onboard DSP, man, I don't know. Thunderbolt might be, might be nice. I wonder for how you. much more latency you get with a USB three in comparison to that. It's a lot. Is it really a lot more? I mean, it it might be doable. It might not like mess you up too much, but it's Thunderbolt is is basically negligible. So that's the interesting thing there too, because even if it has the DSP, I don't know if I would use it. Well, that's, that's what you got to decide yeah. I think. because if you're not going to use it, if you're only going to use it like for mixing, then it I, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Save yourself some money. Yeah. What's interesting, I, I was texting you about this the other day is uh, Avid just came out with a new interface called it's like the Carbon platform. And they have now, it, it's like a Pro Tools interface. It's basically an interface designed for Pro Tools and they're using Ethernet. That's so weird and, to me. And they tout I know, because they, they touted it. I looked at the press release, and they were like, Ethernet, the connection of the future. And I was like, what? Ethernet is the connection of the future? <laughs> I was like really surprised, because if it's really that low latency, why haven't people been using it? I mean, I know there's a couple of products out there that use Ethernet, but it's not like a standard. And um, yeah, I'm just curious. I don't know why that is. I, I just looked it up. It's also $4,000. So Is it really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, they're basically going the UAD route as well, where you have the um, you could have, uh, what's the word? Not native, but um, you could run processing right on the interface, yeah. which saves you from having to use your computer power to run it, and again lets you kind of record basically as if you have an analog setup without latency. So it's it's a very cool concept. But I'm curious why they went Ethernet. Yeah. I have to read a little bit more about that. It is interesting. I don't know, man. Yeah, Ether- Ethernet too. That's so interesting. I, I do want to find out. I mean, I'm definitely not going to buy it. I don't have a $4,000, $3,000 budget for new interface, but I'm very curious. Yeah, and I, yeah, I'm curious as well. Well, anyway, so let's get into, yeah. let's get into today's episode. Today's episode is about phase. And I do want to just, just take a note here. You know, we, we, we have an intern now, our intern David, who's been helping us out with some, some blogs and some content. And it's, it's kind of a joke to call him our intern, but it's kind of like the office where I think he's our intern now, but in two years, he's going to be our boss <laughs> because he's, uh, he's got a lot of hustle going on and he's a, he's a talented producer and mixer in his own right. Good for him. Um, but anyway, he, was, he told me something that kind of st- struck me and I think it, it nails what our goal is on this podcast and just in general, but also on this episode. He said basically like, look, I can go on YouTube and I can watch a three-minute video 
that tells me how to do something. But he listens to our podcast because we explain the why. Like, why are you doing it? Mm -hmm. That's right? great. And I thought that was like a really great insight on his part. And also that's like kind of what we're going for. Like we want you guys to understand why you're doing something, not just the hows of it. And I think that's going to be very relevant in this episode as we start talking about phase. At first you might be like, mm, I don't know if I care about this, but yeah. <laughs> but ultimately, ultimately there will be a punchline. You got any, uh, any thoughts no, on that? That's great. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because that was my first thought as far as trying to figure out how to do recording on my own because I, I very much have been taught by YouTube and the internet in a lot of this stuff right. or just from uh, experience and trial and error. And the most frustrating thing to me with all the videos is, well, everything's so clickbaity. The, the title of the videos are just like, here's a quick trick for making your acoustic guitars sound producers hate me for revealing yeah this. <laughs> all, all that kind of stuff and and a lot of them, some of them are good but a lot of them are there are these settings if you have this piece of gear copy down these settings and here's my free ebook that shows you all the settings on where to put this certain piece of gear and to me that's so frustrating just as a as an intellectual too because I don't want to just know how to do it. I want to understand the why behind it. Because what if I run into right. a different scenario? What if I'm at somebody else's studio and I don't have that piece of gear? Or what if whoever I'm recording, they're recording instruments that I've never even thought of recording bef before. So if I understand the why behind everything, then I could kind of self-engineer any situation to work in my benefit instead of having to say, oh, I wasn't taught this very specific exact thing. So now I have to look it up on YouTube to know how to do it. Exactly. Exactly. And the why is gear agnostic, right? If you know how to do something or why you're doing something, you will figure out how to do it with any tools that are available, which is, which is pretty yeah. cool. So today we're talking about phase and how to deal with phase when you're recording something. I, I thought for a long time phase was something that was like outside of the scope of DIY recording. When I, when I was learning about this stuff, I was like phase is that's professional level stuff. Like I just need to know how to like put my microphone in a place and right. <laughs> pick up the sound coming out of it. So it was something I was kind of intimidated by because there's a lot of, again, lingo with phase. Phase sounds like something super mathematical. So we're going to try to break this down for you a little bit here. And starting from the basics, I'm going to start with just our most pure signal, which is just a uh, 500 hertz sine wave. And I have a very Pavlovian response when I hear 500 hertz, Ben, because in my high school, the, uh, the bells that signified the end of class uh -huh. were a pure 500 hertz tone. Really? So to this, to this day, when I hear 500 hertz, I just get up and head for the door, <laughs> no matter where I am. It's very strange. I have to stop myself. So <laughs> yeah, so here's what a 500 hertz sine wave sounds like. Okay, so if you picture that, you have an oscillation if you we all kind of know what a sine wave looks like it starts going up then it crosses zero coming back down and it kind of oscillates like that back and forth up and down like a nice smooth wave and phase when we talk about phase phase is something that's oh, it's a relative quantity 
right? You can't have phase of like just a single waveform or just a single uh, audio file. Phase is always a relationship between two files. So you need some kind of reference point. So if we have our 500 hertz sine wave, then if we uh, duplicated that sine wave and play the two of them together, so I'm playing now my 500 hertz wave originally that I just played, and I'm playing the exact duplicated one on top of that. Here's what it sounds like. Right, so it's the same thing but louder, yeah. which makes sense because those two waves are what we call perfectly in phase. And visually what that means is when the first wave is on its way up and it's cresting at the peak, the second wave is also on its way, uh, on its way up and they crest at the same exact moment in time. So the peaks perfectly line up with the troughs. And as we know, there's kind of an additive effect here. So anytime you're playing two uh, audio waveforms at the same time, what you're hearing is those two waveforms summed together. And we know this is true because I always use the example of like my cell phone speaker can play a Madonna song. And that's just one waveform. It's a mono file that's exciting, that little tiny crappy speaker in my phone. So we know that we take all of these different sounds, we add them together, and what we hear is the sum of them. Mm -hmm. So in this case, with our two 500 hertz waves, they're perfectly in phase. We add them, we just get something that's twice as loud. The one way I also like to, to think about this too is because the, the one question, this begs the question, why do we refer to uh, sound and music in, in this form of like waves? Why is it represented by waves? And the one mm. way I like to think about it is when you see these waves, like a simple sine wave, which is just, you know, like a smooth up and down repeating uh, pattern. Uh, so when you see that sine wave where it's at the peak, I like to think of that as my speaker monitor or my headphones. That's telling that speaker to push as far out as you can or to push out a certain okay. distance. Yep. And then whenever you see that wave change from the peak and you go a little farther and it's down at the trough at the, at the very bottom, that's telling the speaker to pull in that certain amplitude. And so really what this sine wave is representing is uh, communicating with whatever speaker device, whether that's a monitor or headphones, and telling it to vibrate back and forth at that frequency. And mm -hmm. so that's, that's why we use waves whenever it comes to representing music in a DAW. I think that's helpful to think of it that Absolutely, way. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that helps a lot, actually. Yeah, you're right. The, the waves that we see visually kind of are the visual representation of how our listening device is moving, whether it's headphones or speakers. So yeah, I think that's a great point. So if we take that same 500 hertz copy, and you've probably heard this, ex uh, this um, expression to flip the phase. Visually, what that means is we've, we've taken that waveform and we've turned it upside down. So now everywhere we've had a peak, we now have a trough. And what's going to happen is again, we add the two waveforms together. If we were to, well, first let me flip the phase and just show you what it sounds like by itself. And it should sound exactly the same. All right, so that's our 500 hertz with the phase flipped. Now, if I play the original 500 hertz waveform plus the 500 hertz waveform that's where the phase is flipped, all the peaks will cancel with all the troughs. And what we should get 
is nothing. We should get silence. So let's just test that out. Confirm. Silence. Yep. And this is the operating principle behind noise-canceling headphones. Noise-canceling headphones will pick up the ambient sound and flip the phase. And then what you end up hearing is a cancellation of the ambient sound. So these things are 180 degrees out of phase. Basically, they're, they're perfectly out of phase, and so they cancel each other. We get into more interesting relationships with phase when we talk about in be- what happens in between those two points. What happens in between when something is perfectly in phase and perfectly out of phase? Let's take a more complex signal now. Let's, let's work with pink noise. Pink noise is an interesting example because pink noise consists of kind of all of the frequencies, all of the audible frequencies. And yeah, a little bit of trivia. You and I were talking about this offline. Ben, what's the difference between pink noise and white noise? We've probably all heard of these things, but what's the difference? So tell me if I'm wrong, but white noise is, is equally weighted across the whole frequency spectrum, whereas pink noise is more heavily weighted toward the lower end of the spectrum. But I don't understand why, and maybe that's where you can, you can fill me in. Yeah, so white noise is basically you have equal power at every frequency. So you have, you know, an 80 hertz it has the same kind of power as 85 hertz, has the same power as 90 hertz, and you end up getting white noise. We all know what that sounds like. It's kind of like TV static, right? Pink noise is taking equal power for each octave instead of at each frequency band. And mm. what that does is it makes the noise a little bit darker. It kind of skews it a little bit towards the, the lower frequencies. And the reason it does that is because if you think about like an 80 hertz signal, that's also some note, right? That's some fundamental note. And if we were to double it, e. we would get... Nice. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so if you double that 80 hertz, you get another E at 160 hertz. That E is going to be an octave higher. So that's cool. That's one octave, right? 80 hertz to 160 hertz. The difference between 80 hertz and 160 hertz is 80 hertz, right? 160 minus 80 is 80. But if you took a a note, well, let's take our 400 hertz. That's an A. I know that's the only one I know. If you take 400 hertz and you double it, you get 800 hertz. You get an A that's an octave up. So 400 hertz to 800 hertz is also one octave, but the difference is 400 hertz as opposed to 80 and 160. So that's why you get this kind of skewing towards higher frequency, uh, higher frequencies with white noise and pink noise kind of corrects for that. And it's a little bit more dark, I guess, equal weighting per octave instead of per frequency band. So that's, that's a bit of an aside, but we can try the same exercise with pink noise. All right, let me do this. So here's our pink noise. And here's our pink noise together with the inverted pink noise. Silence. It cancels perfectly. So that's cool. Now we can look at what happens in between these two things. So if we take our duplicated pink noise and we start delaying it a little bit, what will start happening visually, if you picture like 
pink noise is a much more complicated wave than just a pure sine wave, right? Because it's a lot of frequencies kind of crammed into a single waveform. So as we start delaying the second copy of the pink noise, we're effectively changing the phase. We're going from pink noise that's perfectly in phase with its copy to them being slightly out of phase. And depending on how out of phase they are, you get this effect called comb filtering, where certain frequencies will start to disappear and others may be boosted. And that relationship, that phase relationship, will continue to change until we get that full 180 degrees or um, you know, 360 degrees until we're kind of back in phase. Right, mm-hmm. so all through there, from zero to three hundred and sixty, we will get we will be getting different relationships and uh, different frequencies canceling, different frequencies being boosted. So I'm just going to play this quickly so you can hear what it sounds like. All right, so here's our two pink noises. It's going to be twice as loud as the original one, and I'm going to start delaying it. That's a one millisecond delay. Two milliseconds. Three, four. That's 13. Kind of cool, right? Yeah, it is really cool. This is, <laughs> this is really... So just to interject here really quick, this is kind of the whole mm-hmm. meat and potatoes behind... Well, maybe not meat and potatoes, but where the whole creativity behind the EDM and dubstep is all in these having two or three oscillators kind of going off of each other. And, and an oscillator is a more complicated way of basically adjusting the frequency on these different type of waves that are happening at the same time. Yeah, that's a great point. Like we've just made a really crappy low frequency oscillator or just, yeah, an oscillator basically. Yeah. <laughs> so what you can hear there is as we increase the millisecond delay. So as these things become more and more out of phase, the frequency, you can almost hear like a fundamental note in there and the frequency starts skewing lower and lower and lower. So the more the delay between the two, the more kind of low frequencies we hear, which is a really interesting effect. So we're going to get into some real world examples where this, you can imagine, you can have the same type of effect with anything you're recording and you can change the, the kind of the tonal quality of it uh, with the phase relationship. So before we move on to there, Ben, I want to ask you about uh, like maybe what are some examples of times in a recording situation when we, when we may care about phase relationships between multiple signals? I think the most, the most important examples that come to mind are whenever you're recording any instrument, whether it's, you know, multiple sources of sound like a drum set or a band for that matter, or a single source, but you're recording it with more than one microphone. So you have to be very careful that uh, if you want both microphones, or it could even be more than two, it could be a a multiple array of microphones if you want them all to be picking up the sound source uh, in the same phase, you have to be sure that you really take care to line them up either the same distance away from that sound source or in a way that's appealing to the ear. 
Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Like, let's take our pink noise, <clears throat> excuse me, let's take our pink noise example again. Pretend we just had that pink, that same pink noise coming out of one speaker, okay? Coming out of one speaker in our studio. And pretend we wanted to record that for whatever reason. Yeah. And we wanted to record it with two microphones. Well, we would put two microphones somewhere in relation to our speaker. And what we would be recording from those two microphones is essentially two pink noise waveforms, just like we just played in this example. And you hit the nail on the head with like, let's say the distances aren't the same between the microphones and our sound source. Well, what you're going to effectively have is the same pink noise signal, but the microphone that's a little bit farther is going to be a little bit delayed from the microphone that's a little bit closer. And that is a phase relationship. Those two microphones will not be perfectly in phase. And as we just played, what you would be actually capturing is something not quite the pink noise. It's the pink noise, but it's certain frequencies will be skewed. Certain frequencies will be louder and certain frequencies will be quieter. So you're going to get something that's the fidelity of what you're going to yeah. get is not going to be the same. And the same applies to instruments. As you mentioned, like let's say an acoustic guitar, which is one, I think we both have examples of acoustic guitars. That's a single sound source that we very commonly like to use multiple microphones on. And the phase relationship becomes important there. Well said. Do you want to get into one of your examples? We can if you want to, or we can wait till the end, because those are all practical examples, really. I don't know where you're at in your notes. I actually wasn't following along. <laughs> yeah, I'm at, uh, actually, acoustic guitar is what's next in my notes. So here is an acoustic guitar. I'm just going to play a little sample of this. When I recorded this acoustic guitar, I used two microphones. That one is a, a Warm Audio 47 microphone. Here's that same part, same take, with a small diaphragm condenser microphone. I think it's like an MXL 551 or something like that. So a little bit different tonality there between the two microphones, which is what I wanted. So now we have these two parts and you might, we can ask this, ask ourselves this question. What if we played these two parts together, but we flip the phase on the second one? If it's like our other examples, we should get a perfect cancellation, right? So mm -hmm. let's see if we do. That's phase flipped. phase not flip. So there's a difference, there's a tonal difference, but they don't cancel out. So Ben, why don't they cancel out perfectly? We just said if we flip the phase, they should cancel. Why don't they cancel? Well, it, it comes down to a bunch of different things, but it even comes down to the slight differences in the construction of the microphones themselves. They're, they're not even picking up the sound pressure in the same way. So they wouldn't even see the same type of frequency or kind of um, waveform through the air in the way that they would pick them up. Right. So yeah, the complexity of the wave is very, uh, in this example, it's, it's not as simple as just the sine wave. 
Right, exactly. The waves are not identical, basically. For even if we even if we measured our distances perfectly, and these two microphones were perfectly, perfectly in phase, they still wouldn't cancel when we flip the phase because the waveforms aren't identical for all the reasons you just said. They're in slightly different point in space. The guitar maybe sounds a little bit different from one side of the room than it does to the other. And also the microphones are different and the cables are different and the preamp channels are different. There's a, a million places to get differences here. So where was I going with this? Let's see. So yes. So what did you wind up? I'm curious. What did you wind up picking for that example? Because just listening on headphones, I can't tell which one I prefer. They both sound good to me. I use both of them. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah, because I the, the the way I record acoustic guitars, which we can probably do a whole episode on, but I like to use a big, large diaphragm condenser microphone to kind of get the warm body of the guitar. And then I like to use a small diaphragm condenser microphone closer to the bridge to get the really sparkly stuff. And what I end up doing is, you know, some high-pass, low-pass filtering type stuff, but I end up mm -hmm. blending the two signals to get both of the best of both worlds there. Very nice. Yes. So uh, when we record a source like this with two microphones, we want to be conscious of phase. And so you might ask, well, how do I do that? Like we already mentioned, if you're doing something like a drum set, the distance of the microphones becomes important. And I think we're going to play a drum set example as well. But with something like an acoustic guitar, I typically, I mean, I have some rules of thumb just from, from trial and error, but it's something that we can listen to after the fact. Basically, we play the two recordings at the same time, and then we flip the phase on one of them. And then what I like to listen for is the low end specifically, because I've, I've found that when things are out of phase, when there's a phase problem, the easiest place to hear it is in kind of a cancellation in some of the lower frequencies. For some, some of that kind of bottom end, the bassiness, low mids get sucked out of the sound, that is a good indication that you have a phase problem. Especially if you listen to one recording and it sounds good, it sounds bassy, and you listen to the second recording by itself and it sounds bassy, and then you play the two of them together and there's no bass, that's probably yeah. a phase problem. What do, you, what do you listen for, Ben, when you're listening for phase issues? I do three different things. I do a listening thing and I do two visual things because sometimes it can be tricky to figure out. So I'm glad you started with the sine wave example, because if we think about it, it does make sense that if we have waves that are in phase, this should be louder, mm -hmm. just like with that sine, uh, the sine wave example. So the first thing I'll do is I'll, I'll listen to both, both tracks or let's just say it's two tracks we're talking about, like in your acoustic guitar example, and I'll flip the phase on one of them on and off. And I'll just listen for first, what, what sounds better to me? You know, we always want to be, when we're recording, we always want to be analyzing to, to listen, you know, which one sounds better. We don't want to just randomly be choosing one because that's what we're supposed to do. <laughs> so that's the first thing that I do. Yeah. The second thing I'll do is if I can't tell which one sounds better, I'll listen for which one is louder or which one is colored more darkly. Um, the nice thing in my studio is, I don't know if you have a subwoofer, but I have a subwoofer. So that really helps with some of the lower frequencies, especially with like a bass guitar or a drum set. But uh, even if you don't have 
a subwoofer or even studio monitors for that example, if you're using headphones, I'll also look at my peak meters and see if, you know, uh, is there one combination of both tracks I'm using the way that I recorded them or one track is the way I recorded it and the other is with the flip phase 180 is one hitting my peak level meter louder than the other because that'll tell me which one is in phase because the one that's in phase should be hitting louder on my peak levels than the other ones because you get more of an additive effect exactly and then the last thing I'll do is I like to have a spectrum analyzer up because sometimes you can see if the low end is getting sucked because sometimes you'll have interesting examples where your sub low end might be getting sucked out but you might have some constructive interference up in the mid-range so you might fool yourself mm. into thinking oh that sounds louder in that one area because i have some constructive interference but in the low end it'll be completely gone so i like to take a look at that mm. spe spectrum analyzer for that instance too yeah that those are i think those are great techniques and that's a nice that's going to be a nice punchline for this whole episode uh the visual stuff is key and we're we're definitely going to talk you through some of that as well um, so for this exercise, let's just listen to these two acoustic guitars together, and then I'm going to flip the phase on one of them. Let me... Flip phase. That's with the phase flip. That's with the phase normal. Pretty drastic example there, right? Yeah. You could hear a lot of the low end disappear, which is an indication. And the low end was disappearing when I was flipping the phase on the second microphone, mm. which is an indication that the two uh, waveforms should be in pretty good phase. And so if nothing else, when you record a sound source, whether it's a guitar amp, whatever it is, with two microphones, you always want to do this check by ear. That's a nice first pass at, do I have a phase problem? Flip the phase, flip it back, see which one. I mean, look, at the end of the day, you're right, there's no wrong answer. And in fact, there's there are instances where you can use this phase cancellation effect to your advantage. I know sometimes it's common to uh, actually like control a bass cabinet or something like that with a little phase cancellation to actually reduce some of the low end consciously. But Hmm. In general, let's just think of this from the perspective of is it in phase or is it out of phase? If you hear a suck out of the low end, probably you have a phase issue. Yeah. And also if it sounds weird too, if it just sounds really, if it sounds too wide, like there's nothing in the, the middle of, like if you're listening to something on headphones and it sounds like nothing is coming from the center image, it's all from, I guess the same thing would be true if you're listening on studio monitors, but it sounds like nothing is being transmitted in the center image. It's all super wide out in the side. That's also, that's also a yeah. clear indication of a phase problem. And this is actually a good segue into a story that I have on tour. We were actually playing at this pretty famous venue called The Machine Shop in Flint, Michigan. And it's funny, I mentioned that because they have like a really well-oiled operation and they installed some new <laughs> <laughs> they do i'm being serious about that but 
even these issues can come up in, you know, a really good operation like they have up there. And they installed new floor monitors, but they wired the two center wedges for the vocalist. One of them was wired out of phase. And I remember the vocalist said to me, Ben, come over here. This something sounds weird to me. And I stood in between these two monitors that were kind of angled up from from the sides of the microphone stand that was in front of the vocalist. And it was so weird because it it sound everything sounded it's fine not- until I stood in that in the middle of those two speakers. And as soon as I stood in the middle, it sounded like all the sound disappeared. And then I could hear this weird wispy stuff on the outside. And I was like, oh, I bet they're flipped. The phases are flipped on that. So, and, and that's yeah. exactly what it was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that's a great point. And, and that, that's another reason why you can have phase issues, even if you've measured everything as carefully as you can, is because you could have two pins crossed on like a mic cable or a speaker yeah. cable or something like that. And the phase is going to be flipped and you would never know it ordinarily because it'll sound fine by itself. Because again, phase is a relative property. It doesn't mean anything for a single uh, sound. And so, yeah, you could have an issue like that where in this case, it was maybe something on the board or maybe a speaker cable or maybe the way a speaker was wired. And this stuff definitely happens. You might have some cables out there with flip phase that you don't even, or, or yeah, two cables that'll be out of phase from each other and you don't ordinarily know it so another thing you mentioned is is doing this visually and i'm sharing my screen with you our listeners won't be able to see this but if you do discover you have a phase issue and maybe even flipping the phase doesn't get you what you want to do where you want to go you can zoom way in on the waveform and it's usually good to pick a nice kind of punchy part so either a transient or something like that is best and you will actually be able to this is one of the coolest things about digital audio is you can actually visualize the freaking waveform which is Mm -hmm. very very cool and you can look at the two waveforms next to each other and just look do the peaks fall on top of each other or not and in this case i'm showing you my screen ben you can see that they're close they're not perfect but this span that they're off by, let's see what it is, it's less than a millisecond. So for all intents and purposes, these two microphones are perfectly in phase. So I got lucky. Or maybe I adjusted it. I don't remember because yeah. I set this up. <laughs> I Honestly, may have already adjusted this. I would say from my perspective, that's close enough that I wouldn't even bother to move it or check oh, it. Oh, yeah. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so... Now we get into this question. I'm going to pose this question to you. Is like, okay, well, this is a great little trick. We can zoom way in, and if things are out of phase, we can just grab one of the waveforms and physically move it to make it perfectly in phase. And so now I'm going to run off. I'm going to go take all my drum recordings and everything I've ever recorded. <laughs> I'm going to zoom in, and I'm going to perfectly align everything so all the peaks line up, all the troughs line up. Do I want to do that, and why or why not? It's a good question, and I actually have a very interesting example later with the drums where I did this very thing, and it didn't sound okay. It it didn't sound that bad, honestly, and I think I might have changed my mind about some things that I thought before, which is totally okay. But I would say in general, you don't want to do that kind of a thing. One practically because you're just gonna waste so much time, just being <laughs> being so nitpicky about minor phase differences that actually add character to your recording rather than 
do anything detrimental to it. The second thing too is you definitely don't want to do that with all the mics on a drum set because you're going to miss out on the sense of space that you get from distance, different distances away from your recording source, which is so important with uh, a drum set, but also with other instruments. Like uh, you can definitely, and I know a lot of people do record a room mic off of a guitar cab or a bass cab, and it is totally acceptable and good for that microphone to be a little bit out of phase, that, that room mic. And in fact, you're never going to get it perfectly in phase, even if you lined it up. Um, so I would say that it's definitely worth experimenting around with if you have some free time or want to hear what the examples sound like. But in general, you do not have to line everything up perfectly, perfectly, air quotes, perfectly in phase. Yes, I agree with you. There are cases, and we'll talk about some of them, where you may want to, but your example about the drum kit was absolutely perfect. If we think about what we're doing on a drum kit with something like room mics, we are purposely trying to create a sense of space. And that sense of space comes from the, in part, because the room microphones are farther away from the drum kit, and it's taking something like the kick drum a longer time to reach those mics than it does for it to reach the close kick mic. And what happens is you get a larger kick drum sound because you're getting the impact of the kick and then you're getting the sustain of the room. You could go and line those, pull those room mics back so that the transients line up perfectly. And what you'll find if you try this is that you'll get a louder kick. The transient of the kick will be louder but the sustain, the body of the kick will be quieter because it's now compressed into a shorter time than, than what you had originally, which was the transient from the close mic and then kind of the ringing of the room in the room mics. They, it also can say, and so I did this in one of the examples and I don't know if I necessarily want to go there quite yet, but just a foreshadow. In this example, it actually sounded okay whenever I did this exact thing but I have done it with other examples where the decay sounds super weird and phasey and it's because you're getting like an unnatural kind of decay off of the room mics versus the close mics because essentially what you're doing is you're cropping off all of that time where the initial hit happened and you're kind of lining things up even though that initial hit is right on and like you explained earlier you get a larger transient, the way that that sound decays is not the same because you've kind of moved it. You've moved everything from those distant room mics. And so because things are decaying at, at different rates and stuff like that, it can sound really funky. So I kind of try to stay away from doing that kind of a thing. Absolutely. And actually, I, I mean, I'd love to play your example now if you, if you think yeah, it's yeah. a good time. I think you have a drum example, right, of this? Yes, I do. All right. Which track is that? Let's start with track uh, five. This is just the raw recorded drums from a session I did with The Unexpected. This is their song, Get Out. And I just put the last 30 seconds of the final chorus in here. So this is just raw recorded, no EQ done or anything like that. No phase alignment or phase flipping. Just the way that they sound. Cool. 
Sounds pretty good, man. Hey, thanks, dude. So yeah, and this is something that you should be looking for whenever you do your recorded tracks. Um, you should do your best to get all the mics, uh, all their positions lined up so that it sounds like you have good phase. Like the goal is whenever you record them to make them sound as good together as you possibly can. Like if something sounds a little bit off whenever you're setting things up and setting your gain staging, then you should definitely go back and try to problem solve to see what you might be able to do. And I don't necessarily mute and solo every microphone to make sure they're all in phase with one another, but I'll just listen to make sure nothing sounds weird or off to me. Another thing that I'll do too is I'll measure both overhead microphones so that they're as equally distant away from the snare drum as, I po as they possibly can be. That'll help your drum set stay in good phase and it'll make sure that the snare drum will be in the center image of your kit because otherwise... If one microphone is way off from the other, then your snare drum can sound like it's coming from more the left or right speaker, and you're more likely to get some phase issues. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing that. You can have over overheads that are more like spot mics, but then I would probably try to scoop out as much of the, the low end as possible. And as you can hear from that example, everything does sound like it's lined up pretty good. So I'll go through first to tell you what I had mic'd up on this drum kit. I think I had 14 mics. I had kick in, kick out. I had two mics on the top snare, one on the bottom. I had um, two toms. Each of those had a mic. Two overheads. Then three room mics. So Ooh. I had 13, yeah. Oh, because you do the mono you do the mono room mic, yeah. I yeah, that. I did a mono room mic as well. So after listening, so the way I'll normally go th through all of these, and I don't have each of these examples because for the sake of time, but I'll just check my kick in and kick out. After I've gotten everything balanced in my session, I'll check the kick in and the kick out, and I'll just flip the phase on one of them, and I'll see if it's in or out of phase. And... Then I'll do that with all three of my snare mics. And then once I have my kick and snare in, then I'll see if they line up with the overheads. And so I'll just put a little phase toggle plug-in on both of the overheads, and I'll flip them on and off and see if it sounds better or worse. And I've actually heard, um, this is just the way that I learned it, but some of my other studio friends say that you should always start with the overheads, which is probably true. But... You know, that's okay. You can start with the overheads if you want to, but I just tend to start with the kick drum and snare drum. So after I went through and I just kind of checked everything, I realized that my snare bottom, my overheads, and my room mics were all, all out of phase with my, with my other mics. So I just flipped the phase on those ones, and then I uh, recorded that example again and exported it. So maybe we can compare that one to the previous example. Wait, so the, the previous one is like as is, and then you're saying yes. this next one we're going to play, you flip the phase on some microphones to make them more in phase than they were? Yes, exactly. All right, which one is that? That's the very next one, six. Six, okay. So here's six. I'm going to play six and then I'm going to switch to five and back a couple times. Okay. okay. 
five. So, yeah, you can hear a difference in the kick there, huh? Yeah, huge difference. Huge, huge difference. So, yeah, they're not, they're all, they're both pretty close, but you can hear that, you know, just the snare, the overheads, and the room mics are really sucking a lot of low end away from the kit. So, it's definitely something worthwhile checking out. Yeah, very cool. And, you, and like you said, the, uh, the first example sounded good, but yeah. then when you hear it, it sounds, the next one sounds even better. The, yeah, even the kick better. Is, is, is beefier. So, Cool. So I got two more examples with this drum kit. Maybe we can show them really quickly. Uh, the next one is yeah. seven. And I did that exact same thing where you were saying, do we want to waste time doing it? And I wasted the time today. And I lined <laughs> up I lined up all of my individual recorded drum parts so that all of the snares line. Uh, I lined them all up with a snare hit so that all of the drums line up. Like even the room make, mics, they line up and they all hit at the same exact time. And so we could take yeah. a listen and to hear what that sounds like compared to maybe the, uh, the previous one. Cool. Just lined up. is the uh, the previous one all right one more time here's aligned Yeah, it's very interesting. So it's kind of like we said, you, I feel like the the aligned one and the snare, you could hear this, the snare is a lot spikier. It's got a really sharp transient, mm -hmm. but it sounds thinner and less open. There's, there's less snare sustain. And Well, um, before, you, before we make that exact, I think you're right about the sustain. Before we make that you know, thinness example, let's do the very next one because I had to flip the phase on some of those. Mics oh, okay, differently. Okay. So let's compare eight to six, if we could do that, because that's where and the phase is. What's the difference between eight and seven? So in seven, those are kind of all of the, the tracks again with those previous phase flips. But whenever you align them again, the phases change. The phase relationships change. So I had to flip ah. the phase on the kick in the snare bottom, both of the toms and the hi-hat and ride. Okay. And so then they all became in phase again. All right. Let me check that out. So the aligned ones are number eight. So you'll hear me say yes. eight and the not aligned ones are number six. So I'll say six. Here we go. Eight. Six. Eight. One more time. I'm going to give it a little more for each one. Here's number okay. eight. Eight. 
Talk me through it. So interesting. So I think the very first thing that you notice is, wow, the ones that are kind of aligned so that all the hits happen at the same time just sounds deeper, thicker, bigger. And that makes sense because we have more transients hitting at the same time. So it is going to be louder. But then at the same time, especially when you compare it to the other example that isn't aligned, like it's phase aligned, but you have that correct spacing between the distance of the microphones. They're all, the hits are happening slightly at different times from one another. There's something that sounds more natural to me about that. And more than mm-hmm. sounding more natural, it it instantly gives you the sense of space. Like this drum set was actually recorded in a big room. And if you think about that, that makes sense because we can record a dry vocal in a microphone just like we're talking. And then all of a sudden, if we added reverb or delay to it, it would give the sense of space. And all that is, is your those delayed uh, after images um, are what tell your brain that this this thing that I'm hearing is in a larger or smaller space. Yes, that that's perfect. That's exactly how how I would describe it as a sense of space. And and with your dry vocal example, is like a, a way we could get a dummy reverb on a vocal is if we set up one mic close and one mic really far away, that would give you a sense of space. And you're right, it's because our ears kind of pick that up as like, oh, there's a slight delay here. Our ears are actually remarkably good at, at determining phase. And that was that's what I was going to say was that, yes, the snare sounds punchier in the second example but in the in the in the first example where not everything is aligned it's almost like a natural reverb mm-hmm. it softens the transient a little bit but it sounds natural it sounds like a real snare recorded in a real room so yeah cool i think we we understand maybe now what phase is and we understand how we can evaluate it we said the first thing we can do is listen together, which you're doing when you're recording drums. If we do hear a problem, we can flip the phase on one of the channels. Um, And we can also zoom way in and look at the actual waveforms. And then you mentioned another visual technique, which is to look at uh, either your peak meters, which is very cool, because again, if the transients line up, if things are in phase, you should get higher peaks. And also you mentioned looking at the frequency spectrum, because again, you can kind of see sometimes some of the cancellations and some of the holes that occur with phase problems. Yes. My next thing in my notes was what causes phase issues. We've already mentioned some of these. Cables can have reverse polarity or switched pins from another. We've talked about mic placement, which can result in delays. The one thing we haven't mentioned is not – it is a phase issue, but it's a, a different control for it is um, – reflections can cause phase issues, right? So you could even have phase issues in a sense with one microphone because you have two uh, waveforms. So you have, we've we've talked about this on uh, recording vocals episode, but if you have something like a microphone looking at a guitar speaker, that microphone is seeing the sound coming off of the guitar speaker then it's seeing that same sound bouncing off of a wall, let's say, and then coming to the microphone. And that is kind of like a phase issue because you're recording the same quote-unquote waveform, but one is a little bit delayed from the other, and you can get phase effects that way also. So we've talked about that on treating your first reflection points 
and um, you know our Acoustics 101 and Acoustics 201 episodes if you want to learn more about that. Um, yeah, if you have anything to add, please go ahead. My other two things to add are from examples, and I love these examples. They just kind of came up with the last two projects I was working on, actually. And okay. They can be, so these are examples of places where you might find phase issues where you didn't initially think to look. And okay. let's start with the first example here. Um, so this is example number one. This is okay. the main electric rhythm guitar from I Will. Now, when I got these tracks from our vocalist and guitar player, Josh, he sent them over to me. He had quad tracked these guitars uh, to get more, either more thickness and bite uh, out of the guitars for um, for those verse parts, or he liked the tones of the two different microphones or the two different sound sources. I think one was an emulated line out, so there was some kind of amp sim processing on his guitar head. Mm. And he took that out as an emulated line out. And then the other was a microphone that he set up in front of his guitar cab. Okay. So there was two of these on either side. And for the simplicity of this example, I just have the left guitar, but it's just centered right up the middle. So example one is the first emulated line out and example two is the microphone. So let's just play each of those. Sure. So here's the emulated line out. Cool, and then here's the, the mic. Cool. Yeah, so two different tones, and I like that. One's brighter and one's a little darker, and let's combine them together and get the best, best of both worlds. So... Let's play example three and we can hear what they sound like combined. Okay. Yeah, so, so far I kind of like what I'm hearing, but I stop myself quickly before really jumping in and mixing this because... One of the first things I would do with electric guitars is try to not notch out any whistling or ringing frequencies in the high end. Somewhere between, they can be anywhere between one kilohertz and maybe five kilohertz way up there. And I'm hearing one specific really ringing frequency, like a type of sound way up there. But the first thing I decided to do instead of EQing it was stop myself, zoom in and take a look at the face. And sure enough, what happened was when I zoomed in, I saw that that second microphone track was exactly six samples off with every guitar track that he did this with. So what I'm guessing is with that emulated line out, we were getting a direct signal, but with the microphone, there was a delay from the sound coming out of the amplifier and hitting that microphone, a six sample delay in essence, 
whatever that winds up being in milliseconds, I couldn't see that in my DAW. But um, uh, all I did with that was is I highlighted all of the microphone tracks in the session that he gave me, and I slid them back so that they were in phase. And this is what that sounds like. So we can compare three to four. So three is the way I received them, and four is with them phase aligned so that the second track is bumped back six samples. Cool. I'm going to start with three and then switch to four. Very cool. Let's do it one more time. Amazing. Not only did that, uh, I do hear that kind of three, four K hiss that you're talking about. Not only did that problem get solved, but you get a lot more of a kind of a beefier, yeah, more pleasant sound, more, more even sound across the frequency spectrum. Very cool. So I love this example because this is very much related to your acoustic guitar example from earlier. The only difference is, is I heard a problem and that's what made me go investigate for phase. So this isn't necessarily something I would do with it. every track that I was receive, especially if I get like a huge session. I'm not going to waste time just hunting and trying to make sure everything is lined up perfectly. But when I do hear a problem like that, phase is the first thing that I check because as you can hear, it solved my EQ problem. Now I could have taken a notch EQ and I could have air quote fixed it that way, but I could have introduced more phase problems using EQ and I wouldn't have had as beefy as a tone that I got with just aligning the phase without using any plugins. Yeah, and you would have probably, then you would have gotten another EQ to try and boost the low end to yep. get more of those low mids. And now you're, now you have a mess where it was really just a phase problem. So that is a, that is a really great example. Cool. Well, I guess to, to summarize, we've already touched on some of this, but when it comes to what to do, how should this knowledge affect your recording sessions well there's a couple of things we've we've touched on so let's summarize them here for for a multi-mic recording like drums or like a, like a guitar amp is kind of easy because you you typically only have two mics you might have more though um pick a microphone as your reference call this one because remember phase is a reference it's a relative relationship so it's relative to what? So pick one, whatever it's going to be. For drums, maybe you want it to be overheads. Maybe you want it to be a mono room mic, which I've seen done. Uh, whatever it's going to be, pick one. And then check the other microphone recordings against that one. Flip the First of all, just listeners, something sounds wrong or not. And again, a lot of times if phase problems will manifest themselves as a sucking out of the low end. Flip the phase and see if that helps or hurts. That's one thing you can do. If you're troubleshooting it and you can't quite get it, zooming in like Ben did, zoom in and see visually what do the waveforms look like. You might notice, oh, yep, this needs to be bumped over. And then aligning them can help you. But don't go crazy with alignment because some things you don't want to be aligned. In some cases, like the drum kit example, you want to have a sense of a little sense of space and a little sense of a reverb and distance. So lining up the peaks is not always 
going to be a good thing. What else, Ben? Am I missing anything here? I don't think so. I've got one final example that I just have to... Okay, cool. I have to share because it's base, and this is actually kind of a unique one. Um, this is an example where there isn't any phase, but from doing a very common recording technique with bass, I introduced some phase that had to be dealt with. So this bass track is for kind of a heavier rock song called Weight that I've been working on trying to finish up for my sister. And the bass is really, uh, it's low tuned on a five string. So I think I'm playing a, a riff that's around like a, an A, a drop A pretty low and I captured both a DI of this and I also captured um, the Dark Glass Ultra plugin with a heavy amount of distortion. And the problem that I was having, or I should say the common trick to do is you use the mid-range and upper end from the pedal to get kind of your grit and your distortion tone. And then you use the DI to kind of round out the low end because that's a more pure and clean subby low end that you can use. So let's just show both of those real quick. So uh, track number nine okay, is just so the, the bass DI. Got it. Okay. And then track 10 is the Dark Glass plugin. So, what I wanted to do is I wanted to combine the low end from the DI and the high end. So, what I did was we could skip uh, example 11. We'll go right to 12. But what 12 is, it has um, both the DI and the Dark Glass plugin combined. The DI, I low-pass filtered, so I got rid of anything above 90 hertz. And with the plugin, I high-pass filtered at 70 hertz, so I got rid of everything below 70 hertz. And I just did this based off of the way that it sounded to me. And so let's take a listen to what that sounds like. Okay, not too bad, pretty cool. But the one thing that I noticed was I was missing some low end in this actually whenever I combined them um, because the sum, the sum wasn't equaling up to the, uh, the whole wasn't equaling up to the sum of the parts. And I just, <laughs> yeah. I, I decided to kind of experiment with a simple little phase switch and I flipped the phase on one of the tracks just to see if that made a difference and it made a whole heck of a difference. So let's listen to 13 in comparison to 12s. So 13, one of the tracks is phase flopped. All right, so I'm gonna start with 12 and then switch to 13, which is uh, with the phase flipped. Here we go. One more time, I missed <laughs> the switch.
Huge difference. Yeah, huge difference. So what I think happened with this is, oh, what were you going to say, Vadim? I was going to say, listening to, especially listening to them back to back in that first one before the phase was flipped, it sounds like there's holes, like there's just frequency content missing, which is again, another classic uh, phase problem or phase symptom. So what I think happened with this is because in particular, because I'm using low pass and high pass filters, they're notorious for flipping the phase right where you use that, um, wherever you select that high pass to start, the high pass or the low pass. So what I think happened is by introducing those um, parametric EQs, I introduced a lot of phase problems into my recording that weren't there in the original recorded tracks. So this is something to really keep in mind. And I will often EQ even my drums a little bit when I'm recording them just to get rid of a little bit of unwanted frequencies. But I think it's really important to go back and check your phase with whatever you're recording whenever you start adding EQ because it can introduce a lot of weird phase issues that weren't there before. That's a really great point. You know, I, I never even thought about that in the context of filtering, but if it makes perfect sense because you think about, a, again, a waveform. When you apply EQ to it, you are changing the way that that single waveform looks like. You're boosting some frequency content and removing other frequency content. And that can, yeah, that can effectively change the phase, uh, which can be a problem. So that's a that's a really great point, Ben. You know, I, I don't know if, even if I would have thought of that because you recorded them, you checked the phase, the phase was okay. But then in the in the process of applying those filters, the phase changed. And so yeah. that's, that's wonderful. Uh, that's a great example. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, I don't think I would have naturally thought of it either, but this also shows why it's so important to just use your ears like through the whole process. And if you hear anything change, then go investigate and find out why. And, you know, I think, I think you guys will be better for it. So I hope that you've all taken a lot home from this phase episode. And maybe if you didn't even think you were interested in phase before, now you're going to be a lot more interested in it going forward. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was a great episode. Thank you for taking the time to put these awesome examples together, Ben. That was really wonderful. I learned a lot and hopefully our listeners did as well. Until next time, it's the DIY Recording Guys reminding you to check yourself before you wreck yourself. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's work out at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.